Section 5 of The World's Famous Orations, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The World's Famous Orations, Volume 5. On the Domestic and Foreign Affairs of England by William Everett Gladstone. 1809-1898 Born in 1809, died in 1898, the first elected to Parliament in 1832, Vice-President of the Board of Trade in 1841, and President in 1843, Colonial Secretary in 1846, Chancellor of the Exchequer in 1852, 1855, and 1859, Prime Minister in 1868, and three times subsequently until 1894. With the exception of a year and a half, sat continuously in the House from 1832 until 1895. Gentlemen, footnote. Delivered during his Midlothian campaign, November 27, 1879, and followed by his return to power as Prime Minister in the following spring, succeeding Beaconsfield, abridged, by kind permission of the London Times and Messrs. G. P. Putnam's Sons. End of footnote. I speak of agricultural distress as a matter now undoubtedly serious. Let none of us withhold our sympathy from the farmer, the cultivator of the soil, and the struggle he has to undergo. His struggle is a struggle of competition with the United States. But I do not fully explain the case when I say the United States. It is not with the entire United States, it is with the western portion of these states, that portion remote from the seaboard. And I wish in the first place, gentlemen, to state to you all a fact of very great interest and importance, as it seems to me, relating to and defining the point at which the competition of the western states of America is most severely felt. Whatever be agricultural distress in Scotland, whatever it be, where undoubtedly it is more felt, in England, it is greater by much in the eastern states of America. In the states of New England, the soil has been to some extent exhausted by careless methods of agriculture, and these gentlemen are the greatest of all enemies with which the farmer has to contend. But the foundation of the statement I make, that the eastern states of America are those that most feel the competition of the West, is to be found in facts, in this fact above all, that not only they are not in America, as we are here, talking about the shortness of the annual returns, and in some places having much said on the subject of rents, and of temporary remission or of permanent reduction. That is not the state of things. They have actually got to this point, that the capital values of land as tested by sales in the market, have undergone an enormous diminution. There has been developed, in the astonishing progressive power of the United States, there has been developed a faculty of producing corn, footnote, used here in the English sense as meaning wheat, and footnote, for the subsistence of man, with a rapidity and to an extent unknown in the experience of mankind. There is nothing like it in history, do not let us conceal, gentlemen, from ourselves the fact. I shall not stand divorced with any of you who are farmers, if I at once avow 
that this greater and comparatively immense abundance of the prime article of subsistence of for mankind is a great blessing vouchsafed by providence to mankind in part i believe that the cheapness has been increased by special causes the lands from which the great abundance of american wheat comes are very thinly peopled as yet they will become more thickly peopled and as they become more thickly peopled a larger proportion of their produce will be wanted for home consumption and less of it will come to you and at a higher price again if we are rightly informed the price of american wheat has been unnaturally reduced by the extraordinary depression in recent times of trade in america and especially of the mineral trades upon which many railroads are dependent in america and with which these railroads are connected in america in a degree and manner that in this country we know but little of with a revival of trade in america it is to be expected that the freights of corn will increase and all other freights because the employment of the railroads will be a great deal more abundant and they will not be content to carry corn at nominal rates in some respects therefore you may expect a mitigation of the pressure but in other respects it is likely to continue how are you to meet that state of things what are your fair claims i will tell you in my opinion your fair claims are in the main two one is to be allowed to purchase every article that you require in the cheapest market and have no needless burden laid upon anything that comes to you and can assist you in the cultivation of your land but that claim has been conceded and fulfilled i do not know whether there is an object an instrument a tool of any kind an auxiliary of any kind that you want for the business of the farmer which you do not buy at this moment in the cheapest market but beyond that you want to be relieved from every unjust and unnecessary legislative restraint i say every unnecessary legislative restraint because taxation gentlemen is unfortunately a restraint upon us all but we cannot say that it is always unnecessary and we cannot say that it is always unjust yesterday i ventured to state and i will therefore not now return to the subject a number of matters connected with the state of legislation in which it appears to me to be of vital importance both to the agricultural interest and to the entire community that the occupiers and cultivators of the land of this country should be relieved from restraints under the operation of which they now suffer considerably beyond those two great heads gentlemen what you have to look to i believe is your own energy your own energy of thought and action and your care not to undertake to pay rents greater than in reasonable calculation you think you can afford there are some gentlemen and there are persons for whom i for one have very great respect who think that the difficulties of our agriculture may be got over by a fundamental change in the landholding system of this country i do not mean now pray observe a change as to the law of entail and settlement and all those restraints which i hope were tolerably well disposed of yesterday at dalkeith but i mean those who think that if you can put up the land or a large part of it into a multitude of small properties that of itself will solve the difficulty 
and start everybody on a career of prosperity. Now, gentlemen, to a proposal of that kind, I, for one, am not going to object upon the ground that it would be inconsistent with the privileges of landed proprietors. In my opinion, if it is known to be for the welfare of the community at large, the legislature is perfectly entitled to buy out the landed proprietors. It is not intended probably to confiscate the property of a landed proprietor more than the property of any other man, but the state is perfectly entitled, if it please, to buy out the landed proprietors, as it may think fit, for the purpose of dividing the property into small lots. I do not wish to recommend it, because I will show you the doubts that, to my mind, hang about that proposal. But I admit that on principle no objection can be taken. Those persons who possess large portions of the spaces of the earth are not altogether in the same position as the possessors of mere personality. That personality does not impose the same limitations upon the action and industry of man and upon the well-being of the community as does the position of land, and therefore I freely own that compulsory expropriation is a thing which, for an adequate public object, is in itself admissible and so far sound in principle. Now, gentlemen, this idea about small proprietors, however, is one which very large bodies and parties in this country treat with the utmost contempt, and they are accustomed to point to France, and say, look at France. In France you have got five millions. I am not quite sure whether it is five millions or more. I do not wish to be beyond the mark in anything. You have five millions of small proprietors, and you do not produce in France as many bushels of wheat per acre as you do in England. Well, now I am going to point out to you and every remarkable fact with regard to the condition of France. I will not say that France produces, for I believe it does not produce, as many bushels of wheat per acre as England does, but I should like to know whether the wheat of France is produced mainly upon the small properties of France. I believe that the wheat of France is produced mainly upon the large properties of France, and I have not any doubt that the large properties of England are, upon the whole, better cultivated and more capital is put into the land than in the large properties of France. But it is fair that justice should be done to what is called the peasant proprietary. Peasant proprietary is an excellent thing, if it can be had, in many points of view. It interests an enormous number of the people in the soil of the country, and in the stability of its institutions and its laws. But now look at the effect that it has upon the progressive value of the land, and I am going to give you a very few figures which I will endeavour to relieve from all complication, lest I should unnecessarily weary you. But what will you think when I tell you that the agricultural value of France, the taxable income derived from the land, and therefore the income of the proprietors of that land, has advanced during our lifetime? far more rapidly than that of England. When I say England, I believe that the same thing is applicable to Scotland, certainly to Ireland, but I shall take England for my test, because the difference between England and Scotland, though great, does not touch the principle, 
and because it so happens that we have some means of illustration from former times for England, which are not equally applicable for all the three kingdoms. Here is the state of the case. I will not go back any farther than 1851. I might go back much farther. It would be only strengthen my case. But for 1851 I have a statement made by French official authority of the agricultural income of France, as well as the income of other real property, viz. houses. In 1851 the agricultural income of France was £76 million. Pounds. It was greater in 1851 than the whole income from land and houses together had been in 1821. This is a tolerable evidence of progress, but I will not enter into the detail of it, because I have no means of dividing the two, the house income and the land income, for the earlier year, namely 1821. In 1851 it was £76,000,000. The agricultural income, and in 1864 it had risen from £76 million to £106 million. That is to say, in the space of 13 years, the increase of agricultural values in France, annual values, was no less than 40%, or 3% per annum. Now I go to England. Wishing to be quite accurate, I shall limit myself to that, with respect to which we have positive figures. In England, the agricultural income in 1813-1814 was £37 million. In 1842, it was £42 million. And that year is the one I will take as my starting point. I have given you the years 1851 to 1864 in France. I could only give you those 13 years with a certainty that I was not misleading you, and I believe I have kept within the mark. I believe I might have put my case more strongly for France. In 1842, then, the agricultural income of England was £42 million. In 1876, it was £52 million. That is to say, while the agricultural income of France increased 40% in 13 years, the agricultural income of England increased 20% in 34 years. The increase of France was 3% per annum. The increase in England was about one-half or three-fifths percent per annum. Now, gentlemen, I wish this justice to be done to a system where peasant proprietary prevails. It is of great importance. And will you allow me, you who are Scotch agriculturists, to assure you that I speak to you not only with the respect which is due from a candidate to a constituency, but with the deference which is due from a man, knowing very little of agricultural matters, to those who know a great deal. And there is one point at which the considerations that I have been opening up, and this rapid increase of the value of the soil in France, bear upon our discussions. Let me try to explain it. I believe myself that the operation of economic laws is what in the main dictates the distribution of landed property in this country. I doubt if those economic laws will allow it to remain cut up into a multitude of small properties, like the small properties of France. As to small holdings, I am one of those who attach the utmost value to them. I say that in the Lothians, 
I say that in the portion of the country, where almost beyond any other large holdings prevail, in some parts of which large holdings exclusively are to be found, I attack the utmost value to them. But it is not on that point I am going to dwell, for we have no time for what is unnecessary. What I do wish very respectfully to submit to you, gentlemen, is this. When you see this vast increase of the agricultural value of France, you know at once it is perfectly certain that it has not been upon the large properties of France, which, if anything, are inferior in cultivation to the large properties of England. It has been upon those very peasant properties which some people are so ready to decry. What do the peasant properties mean? They mean that, in France, is called the small cultivation. That is to say, cultivation of superior articles pursued upon a small scale, cultivation of flowers, cultivation of trees and shrubs, cultivation of fruits of every kind, and all that, in fact, which rises above the ordinary character of farming produce, and rather approaches the produce of the gardener. But I go on to another remedy which is proposed, and I do it with a great deal less of respect, nay, I now come to the region, of what I have presumed to call quack remedies. There is a quack remedy which is called reciprocity, and this quack remedy is under the special protection of quack doctors, and among the quack doctors, I am sorry to say, there appear to be some in very high station indeed, and if I am rightly informed, no less a person that Her Majesty's Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs has been moving about the country, and indicating a very considerable expectation that possibly by a reciprocity agricultural distress will be relieved. Let me test, gentlemen, the efficacy of this quack remedy for you. In some places, agricultural pressure and generally distress, the pressure that has been upon you, the struggle in which you are engaged. Pray watch its operation. Pray note what is said by the advocates of reciprocity. They always say, we are the soundest and best free traders. We recommend reciprocity because it is a truly effectual method of bringing about free trade. At present America imposes enormous duties upon our cotton goods and upon our iron goods. Put reciprocity into play, and America will become a free trading country. Very well, gentlemen, how would that operate upon you, agriculturalists in particular? Why it would operate thus? If your conditions is to be regretted in certain particulars, and capable of amendment, I beg you to cast an eye of sympathy upon the condition of the American agriculturist. It has been very well said, and very truly said, though it is a smart antithesis. The American agriculturist has got to buy everything that he wants, at prices which are fixed in Washington by the legislation of America, but he has got to sell everything that he produces at prices which are fixed in Liverpool, fixed by the free competition of the world. How would you like that, gentlemen? To have protective prices to pay for everything that you use, for your manures, for your animals, for your implements, for all your farming stock, and at the same time to have to sell what you produce in the free and open market of the world. 
but gentlemen there is another set of men who are bolder still and who are not for reciprocity who are not content with that milder form of quackery but who recommend a reversion pure and simple to what i may fairly call i think the exploded doctrine of protection some of the members of her majesty's government the minor members of her majesty's government the humbler luminaries of that great constellation have been going about the country and telling their farming constituents that they think the time has come when a return to protection might very wisely be tried but gentlemen what delusions have been practised upon the unfortunate british farmer when we go back for twenty years what is now called the tory party was never heard of as the tory party it was always heard of as the party of protection as long as the chiefs of the protective party were not in office as long as they were irresponsible they recommended themselves to the good will of the farmers as protectionists and said they would set him up and put his interests on a firm foundation through protection we brought them into office in the year eighteen fifty two i gave with pleasure a vote that assisted to bring them into office i thought bringing them into office was the only way of putting their professions to the test they came into office and before they had been six months in office they had thrown protection to the winds and that is the way in which the british farmers expectations are treated by those who claim for themselves in the special sense the designation of his friends but are we such children that after spending twenty years as i may say from eighteen forty to eighteen sixty in breaking down the huge fabric of protection in eighteen seventy nine we are seriously to set about building it up again if that be right gentlemen let it be done but it will involve on our part a most humiliating confession in my opinion it is not right protection however let me point out now is asked for in two forms and i am next going to quote lord beaconsfield for the purpose of expressing my concurrence with him since eighteen forty two and down to the present time we have had along with railways always increasing their benefits we have had the successive adoption of free trade measures and what has been the state of the export business of the country it has risen in this degree that that which from eighteen forty to eighteen forty two averaged fifty million pounds from eighteen seventy three to eighteen seventy eight averaged two hundred and eighteen million pounds instead of increasing as it had done between eighteen thirty and eighteen forty two when railways only were at work at the rate of one million pounds a year instead of remaining stagnant as it did when the country was under protection pure and simple with no augmentation of the export trade to enlarge the means of those who buy our products the total growth in a period of thirty-five years was no less than one hundred sixty-eight million pounds or taking it roughly a growth in the export trade of the country to the extent of between four million pounds and five million pounds a year but gentlemen you know the fact you know very well that while restriction was in force you did not get the prices that you have been getting for the last twenty years the price of wheat has been much the same as it had been before 
the price of oats is a better price than was to be had on the average of protective times. But the price, with the exception of wheat, of almost every agricultural commodity, the price of wool, the price of meat, the price of cheese, the price of everything that the soil produces, has been largely increased in a market free and open to the world. Because, while the artificial advantage which you get through protection, as it was supposed to be an advantage, was removed, you were brought into that free and open market, and the energy of free trade so enlarged the buying capacity of our customers, that they were willing and able to give you, and did give you, a great deal more for your meat, your wool, and your products in general, that you would ever have got under the system of protection. Gentlemen, if that be true, and it cannot, I believe, be impeached or impugned, if that be true, I do not think I need further discuss the matter, especially when so many other matters have to be discussed. Gentlemen, I ask you again to go with me beyond the seas, and as I wish to do full justice, I will tell you what I think to be the right principles of foreign policy. The first thing is to foster the strength of the empire by just legislation and economy at home, thereby producing two of the great elements of national power, namely, wealth, which is a physical element, and union and contentment, which are moral elements, and to reserve the strength of the empire, to reserve the expenditure of that strength for great and worthy occasions abroad. Here is my first principle of foreign policy, good government at home. My second principle of foreign policy is this, that its aim ought to be to preserve to the nations of the world, and especially, where but for shame, when we recollect the sacred name we bear as Christians, especially to the Christian nations of the world, the blessings of peace. That is my second principle. My third principle in this, even gentlemen, when you do a good thing, you may do it in so bad a way that you may entirely spoil the beneficial effect, and if we were to make ourselves the apostles of peace, in the sense of conveying to the minds of other nations that we thought ourselves more entitled to an opinion on that subject than they are, or to deny their rights, well, very likely we should destroy the whole value of our doctrines. In my opinion, the third sound principle is this, to strive to cultivate and maintain, a to the very uttermost, what is called the concert of Europe, to keep the powers of Europe in union together. And why? Because by keeping all in union together you neutralize, and fetter, and bind up the selfish aims of each. I am not here to flatter either England or any of them. They have selfish aims, as unfortunately we in late years have too sadly shown that we too have had selfish aims, but their common action is fatal to selfish aims. Common action means common objects, and the only objects for which you can unite together the powers of Europe are objects connected with the common good of them all. That, gentlemen, is my third principle of foreign policy. My fourth principle is that you should avoid needless and entangling engagements. You may boast about them, you may brag about them, you may say you are procuring consideration for the country, you may say that an Englishman can now hold up his head among the nations, 
you may say that he is now not in the hands of a liberal ministry, who thought of nothing but pounds, shillings, and pence. But what does all this come to, gentlemen? It comes to this, that you are increasing your engagements without increasing your strength. And if you increase engagements without increasing strength, you diminish strength, you abolish strength, you really reduce the empire and do not increase it. You render it less capable of performing its duties. You render it an inheritance less precious to hand on to future generations. My fifth principle is this, gentlemen, to acknowledge the equal rights of all nations. You may sympathize with one nation more than another. Nay, you must sympathize in certain circumstances with one nation more than another. You sympathize most with those nations, as a rule, with which you have the closest connection in language, in blood, and in religion, or whose circumstances at the time seem to give the strongest claim to sympathy. But in point of right all are equal, and you have no right to set up a system under which one of them is to be placed under moral suspicion or espionage, or to be made the constant subject of invective. If you do that, but especially if you claim for yourself a superiority, a pharisaical superiority over the whole of them, then I say, you may talk about your patriotism if you please, but you are a misjudging friend of your country and in undermining the basis of the esteem and respect of other people for your country, you are in reality inflicting the severest injury upon it. I have now given you, gentlemen, five principles of foreign policy. Let me give you a sixth, and then I have done. And that sixth is, that in my opinion, foreign policy, subject to all the limitations that I have described, the foreign policy of England should always be inspired by the love of freedom. There should be a sympathy with freedom, a desire to give it scope, founded not upon visionary ideas, but upon the long experience of many generations within the shores of this happy isle, that in freedom you lay the firmest foundations, both of loyalty and order, the firmest foundations for the development of individual character, and the best provision for the happiness of the nation at large. In the foreign policy of this country the name of Canning ever will be honoured, the name of Russell, footnote, Lord John Russell, afterward Earl Russell, end footnote, ever will be honoured, the name of Palmerston ever will be honoured by those who recollect the erection of the Kingdom of Belgium and the union of the disjoined provinces of Italy. It is that sympathy, not a sympathy with disorder, but on the contrary, founded upon the deepest and most profound love of order, it is that sympathy which, in my opinion, ought to be the very atmosphere in which a foreign secretary of England ought to live and to move. I make it one of my charges against the foreign policy of Her Majesty's government, that while they have completely estranged from this country, let us not conceal the fact, the feelings of a nation of eighty millions, for that is the number of the subjects of the Russian Empire, while they have contrived completely to estrange the feelings of that nation, they have aggrandized the power of Russia. They have aggrandized the power of Russia in two ways, which I will state with perfect distinctness. They have augmented her territory. Before the European powers met at Berlin, footnote, 
to formulate into a treaty the results of the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-1878, and footnote. Lord Salisbury met with Count Shovalov, and Lord Salisbury agreed that, unless he could convince Russia by his arguments in the Open Congress of Berlin, he would support the restoration to the despotic power of Russia of that country, north of the Danube, which at the moment constituted a portion of the free state of Romania. Why, gentlemen, what had been done by the liberal government, which forsooth attended to nothing but pounds, shillings, and pence? The liberal government had driven Russia back from the Danube. Russia, which was a Danubian power before the Crimean War, lost this position on the Danube by the Crimean War. And the Tory government, which has been incensing and inflaming you against Russia, yet nevertheless, by binding itself beforehand to support, when the judgment was taken, the restoration of that country to Russia, has aggrandized the power of Russia. It further aggrandized the power of Russia in Armenia, but I would not dwell upon that matter if it were not for a very strange circumstance. You know that an Armenian province was given to Russia after the war, but about that I own to you I have very much less feeling of objection. I have objected from the first, vehemently and in every form, to the granting of territory on the Danube to Russia, and carrying back the population of a certain country from a free state to a despotic state. But with regard to the transfer of a certain portion of the Armenian people, from the government of Turkey to the government of Russia, I must own that I contemplate that transfer with much greater equanimity. I have no fear myself of the territorial extensions of Russia in Asia, no fear of them whatever. I think the fears are no better than old woman's fears, and I do not wish to encourage her aggressive tendencies in Asia or anywhere else. But I admit it may be, and probably is, the case that there is some benefit attending upon the transfer of a portion of Armenia from Turkey to Russia. With respect to Russia, I take two views of the position of Russia. The position of Russia in Central Asia I believe to be one that has, in the main, been forced upon her against her will. She has been compelled, and this is the impartial opinion of the world, she has been compelled to extend her frontier southward in Central Asia by the causes in some degree analogous to, but certainly more stringent and imperative than, the causes which have commonly led us to extend, in a far more important manner, our frontier in India. And I think it, gentlemen, much to the credit of the late government, much to the honour of Lord Clarendon and Lord Granville, that when we were in office, we made a covenant with Russia, in which Russia bound herself to exercise no influence or interference whatever in Afghanistan, we, on the other hand, making known our desire that Afghanistan should continue free and independent. Both the powers acted with uniform strictness and fidelity upon this engagement, until the day when we were removed from office. But Russia, gentlemen, has another position, her position in respect to Turkey, and here it is, that I have complained of the government of aggrandizing the power of Russia. It is on this point that I most complain. Gentlemen, the Prime Minister, footnote, Lord Beaconsfield, end of footnote, speaking out, I do not question for a moment his own sincere opinion. 
has made what I think one of the most unhappy and ominous allusions ever made by a minister of this country. He quoted certain words, easily rendered as empire and liberty. Words, he said, of a Roman statesman, words descriptive of the state of Rome, and he quoted them as words which were capable of legitimate application to the position and circumstances of England. I join issue with the Prime Minister upon that subject, and I affirm that nothing can be more fundamentally unsound, more practically ruinous, than the establishment of Roman analogies for the guidance of British policy. What gentleman was Rome? Rome was indeed an imperial state, you may tell me. I know not, I cannot read the counsels of Providence. A state having a mission to subdue the world, but a state whose very basis it was to deny the equal rights, to proscribe the independent existence to other nations. That, gentlemen, was the Roman idea. It has been partially and not ill described in three lines of a translation from Virgil by our great poet Dryden, which runs as follows. O Rome, tis thine alone with awful sway to rule mankind and make the world obey, disposing peace and war thine own majestic way. We are told to fall back upon this example. No doubt the word empire was qualified with the word liberty, but what did the two words liberty and empire mean in a Roman mouth? They meant simply this, liberty for ourselves, empire over the rest of mankind. I do not think, gentlemen, that this ministry, or any other ministry, is going to place us in the position of Rome. What I object to is the revival of the idea. I care not how feebly, I care not even how, from a philosophic or historical point of view, how ridiculous the attempt at this revival may be. I say it indicates an intention. I say it indicates a frame of mind, and the frame of mind, unfortunately, I find, has been consistent with the policy of which I have given you some illustrations, the policy of denying to others the rights that we claim ourselves. No doubt, gentlemen, Rome may have had its work to do, and Rome did its work, but modern times have brought a different state of things. Modern times have established a sisterhood of nations, equal, independent, each of them built up under that legitimate defense which public law affords to every nation, living within its own borders, and seeking to perform its own affairs. But if one thing more than another has been detestable to Europe, it has been the appearance upon the stage from time to time of men who, even in the times of the Christian civilization, have been sought to aim at universal dominion. It was this aggressive disposition on the part of Louis the Fourteenth, King of France, that led your forefathers, gentlemen, freely to spend their blood and treasure in a cause not immediately their own, and to struggle against the method of policy which, having Paris for its centre, seemed to aim at a universal monarchy. It was the very same thing, a century and a half later, which was the charge launched, unjustly launched against Napoleon, that under his dominion France was not content even with her extended limits, but Germany and Italy and Spain, apparently without any limit to this pestilent and pernicious process, were to be brought under the dominion or influence of France, and national equality was to be trampled underfoot, 
and national rights denied. For that reason, England in the struggle almost exhausted herself, greatly impoverished her people, brought upon herself and Scotland too, the consequences of a debt that nearly crushed their energies, and poured forth their best blood without limit, in order to resist and put down these intolerable pretensions. Gentlemen, it is but in a pale and weak and almost despicable miniature that such ideas are now set up, but you will observe that the poison lies, that the poison and the mischief lie in the principle, and not the scale. It is the opposite principle which I say has been uncompromised by the action of the ministry, and which I call upon you, and upon any who choose to hear my views, to vindicate when the day of our election comes. I mean the sound and the sacred principle that Christendom is formed of a band of nations who are united to one another in the bonds of right, that they are without distinction of great and small. There is an absolute equality between them. The same sacredness defends the narrow limits of Belgium as attaches to the extended frontiers of Russia or Germany or France. I hold that he who by act or word brings that principle into peril or disparagement, however honest his intentions may be, places himself in the position of one inflicting, I will not say intending to inflict, I ascribe nothing of the sort, but inflicting injury upon his own country, and endangering the peace and all the most fundamental interests of Christian society. End of section 5